Hello, my name is Arham Alam, and this is Swamp Talk, where we swamp the talk and talk the swamp. Today, I am joined by uh, Dr. Manuel Rodriguez, who is a local infectious disease expert uh, here in Georgia. And I'm going to be asking him some questions similar to uh, our previous podcast, essentially about the pandemic, uh, COVID-19, the ramifications of this pandemic, and what we can expect moving forward. So just to introduce uh, Dr. Rodriguez, you can say hi. Uh, yeah. Oh, hi. Hi, Dr. <laughs> Rodriguez. Nice to meet you all. Yeah, so uh, first I'm going to start with the questions uh, I had for you. So okay. obviously, as we know, at least this is very recent news, but uh, President Donald Trump, he actually recently got uh, the coronavirus, or at least uh, uh, doctors have said that he did get it. So, what is your reception to that? Like, what do do you think it could prove pivotal for Americans? Maybe, hopefully, help some of them see, especially some of the skeptical ones, see that this pandemic is real. So that's a great question, Arham. Um, what I do see is that, you know, unfortunately, uh, President Trump, um, or I should say, regardless of how your political views are, you know, this uh, coronavirus has been very detrimental to the, the country. And um, the president, unfortunately, has not taken it seriously enough. Um, He's held many many rallies without social distancing or masks, and it's, it's to no one's unfortunate surprise that he unfortunately was at, in, at an increased risk for getting the infection, and then unfortunately has gotten it. So, of course, we wish him speedy recovery, both he and his wife, but he is at definitely at an increased risk for becoming very sick uh, from this unfortunate infection. To your point, um, I have had actually several patients who are folks who didn't believe that this was even a, a real virus or a real problem until they've gotten it. And actually they've kind of gone through the process of being ill and sometimes even unfortunately, you know, being in the ICU intubated for weeks at a time and recovered, thankfully, have come back as really stalwarts in the setting of, gosh, you know, really have to promote the social distancing and the mask wearing because this is such a serious illness. So I'm hoping that some folks who are on the fence of whether or not this was a real issue are now more inclined to say, hey, you know what, maybe perhaps um, what the scientists are saying is actually correct. And perhaps maybe we, should be, we should be following some of these simple and very effective rules. I see. So uh, how has skepticism in the coronavirus impacted your job? So like ha have... Patients, for example, uh, signed AMA forms, uh, which is against medical advice forms, so that they would be released from your care. Or how does uh, like how is the how has that impacted your job? So thankfully, um, none of the patients I have had have signed AMA or against medical advice forms to leave the hospital or to leave against uh, my advice for care. Um, what it has though shown is is that there has been some. Unfortunately, sometimes schisms in families where you have one particular family member who is ill or has some sort of immunocompromising disorder, 
and they're trying to be very careful with their yes. social distancing and, and uh, socializing in general. And yet other members don't believe that this is a problem and want to kind of come over and kind of uh, be with that individual when it really it's not appropriate. I see. Uh, thank you. So obviously we've already talked about the national government's response, but I would also like to look at a state uh, level per se, especially uh, given the wide range of strategies different states are using. For example, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, he has completely uh, gotten rid of most regulations, including uh, ensuring that there is no mask mandate. Obviously, in Georgia, Governor Brian Kemp has also banned a mask mandate, while you have governors in different uh, in other states, such as Governor Andrew Cuomo, it does seem he is relaxing the regulations. So do you believe they are making the right calls? Or do you believe this could exacerbate the situation further? So I have to say that I can't imagine how difficult it is for politicians in the current, you know, current pandemic to make decisions that um, in the end don't affect really you know, millions of people. Definitely. Um, so, you know, we know that masks do work. Um, you know, the CDC recently, you know, said that if we were able to wear masks the next, you know, three to six months, we'd be able to probably reduce the risk of mortality for our patients by half, even without a vaccine. So, you know, it's, it's sort of, um, and we live in a state where, or not, and not just in a state, but in a country where we are so proud of our individualism, sometimes we forget that sometimes we got to do things for the greater good. I see. Uh, and and mask, you know, despite the fact that they're sometimes uncomfortable. I mean, you can imagine that you're that you know myself and your father and other folks in our in our in our well, and other physicians and healthcare providers wear masks twelve hours a day plus sometimes not the most comfortable things in the world, but we do it not just because we think it's the right thing, but because things is the best thing to do for our patients. Um, and so little sacrifices for others, you know, and, and for the greater good is sometimes something, something we forget. And I think that's being lost here uh, when some of these politicians talk. Um, the politicization, that's the right word, um, for this disease has been so fraught with disinformation and, and challenges that makes our job so much more difficult. Okay. Um, yes. Uh, thank you. So I would also like to look at an international scale, too. So as we know, Brazil so, uh, and other countries such as Brazil, Bangladesh, what have you, they have also been hit rather hard by the coronavirus, but they have dealt with seasonal epidemics before or uh, Yes, uh, seasonal epidemics before. So personally, for me, I've I know Bangladesh. They sometimes have a seasonal dengue fever, if I'm not mistaken. So why have the uh, if they already have experience in infection control, why have they struggled so much now? It's so. That's another wonderful question. I, I think part of it has to do with the. Um, amount of contagious capacity that this coronavirus has. I mean, with dengue, for example, you know, we can do mosquito control. With coronavirus, there's such a human component to it that makes it very challenging for us to really um, get a handle as far as 
how we best communicate with the citizens of those countries to say, hey, this is what you have to do to help prevent it, and then having to follow those rules that doesn't spread out. Um, as you see in the United States, you know, we we believe ourselves to be a very um, advanced and progressive country, yet here we are, you know, the, the country with the second most cases in the world, second, I think, to India alone, and with certainly so many more deaths. Um, it goes to show you that it, it, it goes a lot further to kind of be very transparent and hopefully educate the populace so that they understand how what the importance is to kind of have basic um, basic um, health care or uh, health hygiene needs to help kind of move forward and to help reduce the risk of spread. I think part of it is, is just that, that it's just a different animal in this particular case when it comes to COVID-19. I see. Um, so next, I would like to ask about statistics impact on the coronavirus and how it has possibly helped you do your job. Uh, so how has statistics and data collection proven to be useful for traffic uh, for excuse me for tracking COVID nineteen? So certainly, um, the statistics that have been released both by the CDC and the Georgia Department of Health have helped a great deal with kind of um, recognizing what the risk is at a county level. Um, as you know, our practice kind of varies between several counties, including four sites, Fulton, Canton, um, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And understanding what the trends are is very important to kind of give us an idea of what we should expect. Um, several different companies are now in the process of using that data to help um, identify certain high-risk populations, and that will also help identify hotspots. Um, clearly, this data has also helped identify which age groups and other risk factors are at high risk uh, for developing worsening disease, more at risk for death, etc. So that way, statistics has helped quite a bit. Excellent. So. How do you believe statistics could improve, though? So, one is to make sure that the, the statistics that are being uh, uh, processed or being uploaded are accurate. Um, when it comes to, for example, uh, death certificates, um, sometimes um, there is the confusion as far as you know how best to identify the death and whether or not it's COVID-related or not. So I think that just skew the information. The other thing, too, is that oftentimes the data as it is, as it is presented is sort of um, delayed. I mean, someone who has COVID today may not may not die for weeks to months sometimes. And mm-hmm. so the mortality rate does vary. And that, that kind of big picture is kind of lost sometimes in the day-to-day analyses. So I think in some ways we have to kind of qualify some of the statistics. And I think that's sometimes lost um, in the weeds when we hear it from a day-to-day standpoint. I see. So do you believe too many deaths right now are pinned to the coronavirus? Um, my guess, and I, I don't have any data to support this, my guess okay. is that actually too little deaths are okay, reports to coronavirus. I, I, if you think that it takes about, you know, anywhere from zero to 14 days on average, five to seven days to present with symptoms, mm-hmm. and then sometime afterwards um, to present, you know, to the, to the hospital and then subsequent ICU, and then and forbid sometimes even death, it takes a long time for that process to happen. So I think the death rates are, are sometimes, I would say underreported, but sometimes underrepresented in the data because they haven't 
gotten to that point yet. You know, if you get COVID nineteen on day one, but yet you're an unfortunate person who dies on day forty five, that information takes that takes those forty five days to get get published as a death, and that sometimes is not uh, not necessarily helpful so far out. I see. Now I want to uh, kind of talk about the medications, not necessarily vaccinations exactly or vaccines, but the medications. Because I know in the past, uh, some heads of states have been pushing hydroxychloroquine and remdesivir, remdesivir uh-huh. as medications to help uh, quell the coronavirus. Yes. What was the exact rationale that uh, that got us to that point? And have there been studies that have at least drawn some sort of correlation between consumption of these drugs and a decrease in coronavirus? Sure. So a lot of drugs, unfortunately, at first um, were being used experimentally to try to treat the coronavirus, prevent the coronavirus. One of those being um, kind of most infamously as hydroxychloroquine, brand name Plaquenil. And um, the numerous studies now have shown that there's no obvious statistically significant benefit to the use of hydroxychloroquine. And in fact, we know now that there's actually increased risk of things like cardiac dysrhythmias with hydroxychloroquine or compared to folks who are not. There's very little benefit. The thought was that it would help prevent the um, virus from integrating into our cells. And so that's initially what was thought to be the benefit of it, but it hasn't panned out. Now, we do know that remdesivir um, has shown some benefit in some studies, although not all studies that have done on it, as far as being used early on, sort of like Tamiflu. We use Tamiflu, a generic name, also Tamivir. And folks within 48 hours of being exposed to or starting with flu-like symptoms to help prevent worsening of the flu symptoms. And generally, in most studies, the best is done is reduce the flu symptoms for a day or two. Similarly, remdesivir, um, the earlier it's used, the more benefit it would likely obtain, um, similar to Tamiflu. But in reality, we don't have data to suggest that as far as mortality, morbidity, that is a benefit as of yet. But other countries, for example, like Japan, um, India, um, Russia, and others are using some oral antivirals that have been specifically uh, targeted for uh, COVID-19 and have had some benefit, although those aren't currently available in the U.S. Those are still in study. In fact, I believe I read recently that Stanford uh, has some ongoing for that. Um, that would be a benefit because, like Tamiflu, it's an oral regimen as, as opposed to remdesivir, which is an IV medication. I see. That's very interesting uh, uh, to at least know about that because, uh, frankly, I actually didn't really know too much about that. I think uh, the news cycle kind of it quieted on that front, but it's really nice to know about that type of stuff. And so... Now, I've also heard of some public health officials um, pushing for her, the, pushing the idea of herd immunity. So I believe, for example, one of uh, President Trump's advisors, Dr. Scott Atlas, who's a radiologist, uh, he was 
he believed that in order to stop the coronavirus, you needed to herd immunity. I believe uh, that I believe he's one of the figures pushing that narrative. Do you believe that's accurate, or where is he misguided? Um, wow. Um, so, if there's no other... The problem with herd immunity is that you risk people who are at high risk of developing serious uh, problems with the infection, serious complications of the infection, to also get infected. Um, you know, the, the, what herd immunity, I think people think about is things about, think about people like the uh, chickenpox parties I used yes. years ago before the um, chickenpox vaccine was introduced in the 1990s. And so yes, yeah. um, you know, we have children, typically children are less affected, have less complications, similar to what we have with coronavirus right now. We talk about, you know, older individuals kind of getting together, you have more complications, more risk of death. So even if the risk of death is, is like 2%, you know, talking about millions of people, that's a huge number of people you're talking about. That's true. And so I, I think in some ways he's misguided in that sense. And because the amount of permitting, so let's, let's back up for a second. Sweden is a, is a good example of this. Sweden has basically not done anything as far as um, social distancing or lockdown at all. And initially people were scratching their heads saying, wow, they do this. But they have a very homogeneous population with very little uh, travel in and out of that country. And recently, they, uh, last couple months, they did have worsening coronavirus rates. Now they're getting better again. So, but the thought was, you know, could we do herd immunity and then everybody be fine? In reality, it hasn't panned out. I don't know exactly, don't know the exact numbers, but I thought that the numbers I've heard, like you need about 30% of folks um, to be infected with a disease in order to have herd immunity. And that's a huge amount of people and a huge amount of, li of lost lives in order to have or achieve that number. Um, so the only way of getting around that is really through vaccination. Oh, okay, I see. So it... Are, were you are you essentially saying for in Sweden's uh, scenario it partially worked or I think I got a little bit confused there. So I, I think the thing that I think honestly the the truth is we don't know for sure. I think time will tell. I, see. Um, I, I think that because they, again they have a more homogeneous society, mm -hmm. um, yeah. it's not a very large country. You know, it's not like the U.S. where it's so diverse. I think they have a better shot of doing that. But even there. I think the loss of life will be higher than if they actually would impose things like you know, social, uh, mask wearing and social distancing, et cetera. I see. Okay. So my last question is going to be, what will a post-quarantine society look like? And when do you believe we can expect this society? So a post-COVID-19 environment is, is very uh, challenging to project. We're talking about geopolitical changes potentially in the world structure. I mean, right now, the U.S. is considered the preeminent um, place, the preeminent country as far as leadership. Um, China is growing very rapidly. You know, with our rapid changes that have occurred in the last several years, it would be very likely that we could see a change in that. You know, who knows that with the coronavirus, the way things are changing and the economics of things and whether or not we get out of this recession as quick, quickly or not, whether or not China supersedes us as a global power, who knows? Um, um, that, that's, a, that's a huge, should be a huge change here. Um, and I think in general, at a more kind of a personal level, I think people are going to be more self-conscious about not just 
what to do with coronavirus, but for example, influenza and how we manage that. I mean, there have been countries for years that during influenza season, they were wearing masks all the time, you know, and gown up and gloves, et cetera. I mean, we may be moving more towards society where we're more cognizant of those kind of things where we really kind of just were laissez-faire about it. Oh, I see. Um, there's also questions about whether or not like supply chains are going to change with this whole um, post-COVID-19 society we'll live in. I think things are, are certainly changing. Um, uh, I think it's kind of very difficult to tell, honestly, what will happen. Oh, um, how long How long it will take? Oh, gosh. I mean, it depends on how quickly we get the vaccine out and how quickly, not just, uh, what I mean by getting the vaccine out is not so much when we have the vaccine approved, but when we actually have it distributed. Because it's one thing to have the vaccine approved, which could be really before the end of the year, but then how do you distribute it? You know, if it's a, if it's Pfizer with this, with this two dose regimen, um, or some of the other companies are coming out with a one drug regimen, that's a huge difference. And, you know, if some, something's frozen, not frozen, et cetera, all those things take, are taken into account. And so it's very difficult to say for sure, but the distribu- distribution will be huge as far as uh, the vaccine. I see. Okay. Thank you so much, Dr. Rodriguez. I really appreciate you for uh, doing this interview with me. I've learned a lot from it. So again, thank you so much. Of course, Arnold. My pleasure. I really appreciate talking to you. Excellent. Uh, and to the audience, thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate it. I hope you also learned a lot from this podcast as well. If you would like to for me to ask certain questions, make sure to email me at talkswamp at gmail.com. See you next time.